folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, guys, our guest for this outing is a repeater. He is Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Doc Future, the longtime host of Future Quake. More recently, he has been busy blogging and writing books. His blog is The Two Spies Report, which can be found at the thetwospiesreport.wordpress.com. That is the two spies report, all one word, dot wordpress.com. And he's also released a book, The Groundbreaking, Two Masters and Two Gospels, which is available at all fine online book retailers. And finally... He has gloriously taken the mic up again. He is currently the host of the aptly titled The Two Spies Report on WRFN 103.7 FM. It airs each Thursday at 5 p.m. Central for an hour, and I'm assuming around the Nashville area. But it can also be streamed live by clicking on the arrow at the top of Radio Free Nashville. That is Radio Nashville on one word.org. Anyway, Doc, thank you so much for joining me again, sir. It's been too long. Oh, it's a privilege to uh, be with you and your audience, both of whom are far more uh, well educated and informed than I am. So I'm hoping I'm not uh, being a drag on you and your audience, but the topic is something that's had my attention for a while. So I'm here to learn as much as to pass on information. Oh, Doc, I think uh, you could hold your own in about any kind of intellectual uh, sparring match, uh, but that's just my opinion. But yeah, this is uh, definitely going to be a fascinating one to explore. We are going to be looking at Mr. Timothy Ballard, formerly of Operation Underground Railroad, or R, and the basis for the film Sound of Freedom, starring Jesus Christ, a.k.a. Jim Cazizel, I believe. Uh, well, anyway, you guys all know him as Jesus anyway, so... Uh. But Doc here has been doing a lot of great work on Mr. Timothy Ballard for his own radio show and has graciously agreed to drop by the farm and share some of his findings. We're going to be using Mr. Ballard's departure from ARM as a launching point and a dive into the sordid world of psychics, ketamine therapy, tantric massages, and Brazilian waxes, much of which has been paid for by many fundamentals Christians. Uh, we'll also look a bit of his origins, maybe his quasi-mystical take on the Founding Fathers and the passion that he has for the nation's capital's Masonic lodges. It's quite a tale to put it mildly 
So on that note, let us start the show. So to start off with, I know you've been following Mr. Ballard for a while now. Did you want to get into anything concerning his origin stories or anything of that nature before we get into his hasty departure from Operation Underground Railroad? Well, let, let me ask first, uh, have, have you been prepping your audience in your recent shows about some of the origins of Tim? Because I don't want to be redundant. We didn't look too extensively into that. I mean, I think most people know the basics, um, i.e. his ties to the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, but it might be good to give everybody a quick yeah. crash course in this just to be on the safe side. Well, he's he has tried to clarify recently to his audiences when he's been put on the spot that he wasn't getting into the hot, heavy stuff when he was at CIA. He was says he was just an analyst. Now, you know, I know the whole gig about do people give me an honest answer what they do, you know, when the CIA, but I'm thinking he's probably right that he was sort of a flunky. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's sophisticated enough to have done anything that significant for the CIA. Um, but where he got to have a little bit more action was in the um, Department of Homeland Security as far as like the Border Patrol stuff. But we have found that he has grossly inflated all of that, too. Uh, some of the stuff that he did uh, there, as far as like uh, people coming across the border, he he has been very uh, uh, flagrant in exaggerating or just outright changing the dates of certain people that he picked up and when it happened and the chain of events that happened. And he sort of built this fantasy. Uh, he really wasn't all that glamorous when he was there either. But but one thing he did seem to get the idea of is that he started getting these sort of vigilante kind of views, which is not uncommon if you have guys that are more into the tough guy industry of military or law enforcement, and they'd like to take matters in their own hands and not be bothered by things like civil rights or, or laws or their limits or you know rights of other people. And he just basically got the idea that uh, he wanted to... Uh, be able to take matters in his own hands in a vigilante group to get around limitations like basically the the uh, authority of different nations uh, over their own sovereignty and, and their laws and how they do things and to basically be almost like a a little bit like a uh, soldier of fortune uh, in what he was doing. And he got some guys in his high-level Mormon circle spooled up where they started starting some of these operations and getting them going even before he had separated himself from the government. In other words, they had greased the skids and had everything ready to go uh, even before he jumped ship. And that gets down into the fine print. I would have to go back into some of my earlier shows. I will say that uh, my Two Spies Report show right now comes on live at 5 p.m. Central on Thursdays. And so you can stream it live. What I'm hoping after the first of the year you start getting these up on YouTube and archived because people can go in the earlier shows. I've been I've been covering 
Yeah, on the show, I usually have a segment that takes anywhere from, say, a third to a half of the show on contemporary case file reports. And uh, this thing has dominated my reports since August. And what got it all going was uh, a mutual friend of ours, and most of your audience knows, Adam Sane, who I would bring on the show once a month just so that people got a break from hearing me talk ad nauseum. And I'd have him and sort of cajole him to bring some stories in. And he brought in a story just before that about um, how a lot of these Christians and other conservatives were conflating this new conspiracy theory that theater owners were sabotaging uh, airings of Sound of Freedom movie that was supposedly about him and that they were actually sabotaging the viewing of it because, you know, all, all of the establishment and Hollywood and the elites are all against the Christians. And of course, they're all pedophiles, too, according to QAnon. And so it makes sense that they would sabotage these. And when he shared that story, I had to go back and do some homework on Sound of Freedom because I haven't been involved in a regular church in a couple of years since we had a big dust up about COVID and, and visited a few places. So I haven't been hanging out as much with the Christian crowd. And I had to do a quick uh, study myself to find out how this was all the rage in their circles. And since then, I've noticed even like on my wife's Facebook page, people we've known that are Christian people are all talking about how wonderful Tim Ballard is and Sound of Freedom. And that was like late summer, which is long, long after the kind of information that you and I have uncovered and some of the original researchers going all the way back to 2015 have uncovered. They were totally clueless about any of this. So it was a combination of me going back in time, and I've tried to be chronological in my reports just to try to figure out, well, here's when this milestone happened and this one and this one, but yet try to catch up with all the stuff that has taken place from about the middle of July until right now, because there's usually bombshell reports every few days about something else coming unglued with this whole operation and deeper and deeper revelations that are really sort of consistent with the kind of things that you and your audience would be more interested in rather than just the, uh, you know, sordid tales of infidelity or other things. There's other ideological movements and secretive activities that really fall right in line with what your audience is. And that's the things that are actually becoming a little bit more uncovered. Although I will say guys like Lynn Packer and others started putting a lot of it together years ago. And people like me are just starting to catch up. Yeah, his research has just been fantastic on a lot of this stuff for a while now. Well, do you want to then take us through Mr. Ballard's departure from Operation Underground Railroad in July? Well, actually, before we get into that, just in general, what is your take on uh, Sound of Freedom? Because it's it, it, the whole journey of the film is so fascinating to me because it was shelved for several years it's uh, brought out in this uh, curious year of 2023 and it really seems to be just a first rate piece of psychological warfare or fourth dimensional warfare if you want to go there um you have especially the uh the casting of Caviezel in there um who is most closely associated with the passion of Christ um playing Timothy Ballard I mean it's a um I mean, if anything, it's maybe even a little heavy-handed in this sense, but it does seem like it was 
primed to set up this almost messianic movement around Mr. Ballard. Do you get any kind of sense of that? Well, the irony of it is that the director, I think he's Mexican. He, um, I know, I know he's Latino, um, had some real credentials. And I was just writing about him last week and talking about it on my show. He originally was doing a fictionalized, totally fictionalized story about some people who go and decide they're going to on their own help rescue kids that are being trafficked. Then he had an encounter with, uh, through some common connections, with uh, Tim Ballard, who had been working on burnishing this mythology about his brave rescue and, you know, these dangerous raid missions that they do. And the director said, ah, there's a, uh, here, here's a story that's, you know, closer to my story, but it's true. But now at the same time, and this is something that the fans of the movie would never accept because they take everything verbatim as true. Even the director has gone on the record and said, a lot of this stuff is fictionalized. And they took liberties with a whole lot of stuff like some of the people he was battling. Now, granted, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm going on the people who are describing the key events and characters. The 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 guys that he's supposedly fighting and the people he's rescued were people he didn't actually rescue. They were they were other people that either had turned themselves in or had been secured by other third parties. So he took some random name that were totally uh, events that happened many, many years before he ever got involved in anything. And so he's taken this smattering of names and he can say, oh, yeah, that person's real. And this happened and real. But the whole thing of who did what to what, that's the fabrication and when. And so it became this mythology. And the director, if you hear him now, he may be giving to me a couple but he he actually suggests like, well, yeah, I understood all along that this was a fictionalized account. This is how Hollywood does things. We're just wanting to to sort of show the, you know, what the real need is. I mean, because as I understand it, Jim Caviezel, who plays Ballard, actually goes and chases this, you know, person down and they have hand to hand combat and he kills them and stuff. And there, there's no shred of any evidence that any of that has happened. So, um so anyway, that's been built for a long time. My my suspicions are that people who were brought to the table with Tim Ballard were very, very wealthy people in Mormon circles in Utah. And the ability to raise the money to make things happen came with Ballard. So it was a perfect storm, basically, uh, that happened. And then they did the crowdfunding they got the people and, you know, they were able to use sort of the religious angle and fervor like, you know, you're doing a crusade or something for this. And so people stepped up to provide the money at that time. One of the I think it was four guys, four Mormon guys that were involved in the production. One of them was recently uh, convicted of um, defrauding Medicare of tons of money. And I covered it in my last show, and he admitted it. They interviewed him in the press, and he admitted that he had basically set up some fraudulent ring of doctors that were doing unnecessary tests and were doing the test and doing kickbacks, and he was convicted of it. So 
you know, this is sort of the kind of crowd that you're dealing with, with this. It later, when it was exposed with the infamous whiteboard in 2019, uh, their, their meetings, when he's talking about the big plan, he always said that this was a moneymaker and what it provided to the audience. I don't want to get ahead of us here, but what it provided to the people he was trying to introduce himself to do and develop this brand was to provide what he called the sizzle. And on the boards, the the movies and his rescues, you know, he had dreams of a reality TV show, which he'd planned and all this. And, and it turns out, I found out when you sort of peel the engine back, when they ran at each other, he was already marketing himself in Hollywood to try to get this kind of like weekly TV show. So, so Tim, it wasn't like just Tim was minding his own business and somebody came calling to make a movie. He was already trying to come up with something akin to this. They'd done some similar documentaries trying to float it through Hollywood and the stars just aligned with this. But, um, that's that's sort of the nature of how it came about. But the sizzle he talks about, and if you know anything about marketing, you know that uh, when they talk about, you know, if you if you can't sell the steak, you sell the sizzle. And what the sizzle is, is that what you're trying, a picture you're trying to paint in marketing of certain emotions, of certain things that stir people, their priorities or whatever, and you use that as an indirect way to sneak in your product to sell. So he was accurately using this. You know, he he's talking about something that stirs the base passions of people. No one wants to see children hurt or exploited. So if saving the children and not hurting the children means you have to support him, then what are people going to do? Particularly gullible people, of which we have more than enough in our society today. So the movies, this kind of stuff was the sizzle. And as he admits later, and we could talk about this later, his goal not only was to sort of uh, run it through a very clever arrangement of companies to have a pseudo nonprofit, but basically funnel all the funds to a for profit that him and a few of his buddies owned. So they're making, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. But then also it was to lead people to the covenant. So th this guy is like a lot of people we have talked to in the past and in the evangelical circles and others. He's a mixture of selfish greed and some kind of real messianic belief combined, which is the worst possible combination. So he really believed his goal, and he's been doing this consistently through some of the books you have reviewed and I have found to try to set up that like Christians and evangelicals need to come home to the real gospel that's in the Book of Mormon, in the Mormon church. And all of these operations were intended to do that while he made a windfall of profit in the meantime. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's important to emphasize, too, that he would have been looking into um, this kind of branching out into film and so forth pretty early in Operation Underground Railroad's existence, because what the, they started working on the movie around 2018, 2019, right, in pre-production, so... Uh, he would have had to have been pitching a lot of this stuff literally, I mean, probably like a year or two after um, the organization was set up, if I remember correctly. I think I think he got out of the government, if I remember right, at the end of 2013, and they already had the business infrastructure set up by then. And then in 2014, things were going in earnest, and they had done a couple other 
like documentary films that didn't do quite as good as I hoped, like the abolitionist, like Toussaint, and he was trying to so and he was trying to put a reality TV show together. So this combination of this fictional story that this somewhat competent director wanted to do, that they were able to sort of morph into a fantasized version of his life was after they'd already had a few other kicks at the can. You know, so they had learned the ropes a little bit about some stuff. But the main thing to learn was about what buttons to push with the public. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to know this stuff. Basically, you just follow the P.T. Barnum idea. There's a sucker born every minute. Hmm. And if you can lower yourself, you know, I've had talks with people I respect, people like you, Adam Sane, a few others, who've tried to main, maintain some level of credibility in what you do. Those things can really work against you if you want to be really, really super successful. Because you really, if you want to make it big, you got to go down to people's base passions and tell them the kind of things that you know aren't true and the kind of stuff you can't look at yourself in the mirror. Some of those people actually just start believing the lies after a while because they've told them so many times. But you've, you've just got to know how to push the base passions, whether you're selling jewelry or used cars or some kind of ideology like these guys are doing. And, you know, you know, the old phrase, it says, uh, what, what, by the time that the truth catches up with the lie, it's traveled all the way around the world or something to that effect. This is that case. He's had tons of money and mouthpieces, and he has a story that makes everybody feel good on the Christian right. And so they welcome him with open arms. It's a, it's an easy to sell story about saving kids. And I mean, people who critique this stuff, it's an uphill battle to keep up with the media operation. And it it's possible it may just be cusping now because the chickens are coming home to roost. But in the Christian world, I don't have any evidence except for a few examples that 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 these questions are even penetrating their community yet. Another interesting thing, too, about Ballard were the collection of books that he has published. Uh, right. We'll probably get into a little bit, but this was also going on. It started, I believe, shortly after he had uh, resigned from government work. But it needs to be emphasized here that most of his books were published by uh, Desert Book which is actually, um, I think, owned through a few subsidiaries uh, outright by the Church of Latter-day Saints. Oh, yeah. So, it's a, Deseret Books is, a, is pure LDS-owned. So this is a Mormon-owned company that was pushing his books very early on, and there's a lot of controversy around this, um, even amongst uh, certain circles within the Mormon community, in terms of some of the hypotheses that are put forward by Ballard. So, yeah, it's it's kind of funny now, just as a lot of the controversy around Ballard has broken up, Desert Books has just uh, started to pull his publications from uh, the shelves. Uh, there was right. this Salt Lake tribute here um, from uh, was it September 23rd or September 29th of this year, 
Uh, they write, for his part, Park is pleased the church appears to be removing Ballard's books, but he and others wonder why Desert Book promoted and sold his books in the first place. Historians have been highlighting the problems with Ballard's books for over a decade, he said. Many brought their concerns directly to Desert Book to no avail. The book were not all the books were not only profitable, but also fit into a large and equally problematic Christian nationalism that enraptures many Latter-day Saints. In all likelihood, Patrick stated, were it not for the morally indefensible activities that resulted in the church distancing itself from Ballard, they would still be on Desert Book shelves for some time to come. It wasn't Ballard's many, many historical problems that resulted in the removal, but his personal indiscretions. So yes, um, very uh, interesting turn of events with that, after years of pushing this guy. Do you want to take us into his departure then from Operation Underground Railroad? Uh, uh, yes. Um, you know, this kind of thing has just happened. Um, you know, in, in, we're, we're talking about just recently, uh, where this has actually occurred and, uh, it was simultaneous with the time that he was, um, beginning to promote the movie. So as I've tried to say, it's, it's simultaneous when his greatest zenith of, or, you know, high watermark of their influence, simultaneously everything's coming unglued because uh, of some complaints of some female operators internally that were also um, started an internal investigation. And this internal investigation found evidently that there was validity that he was doing improper things with women in something that's now been since this time has been coined as a little phrase that they use called the couple's ruse and the couple's ruse and his explanation he used is that well we're selling people on this lie when we go out and get these kids i'm talking about in their operations and so we got to make them look like we're really bad guys and so we've got to really sell them on who we're telling these bad guys we are when we do an operation. And so the women that go, he says, well, you're going to be my wife. And because you're my wife, uh, possibly I can convince them not to let me participate in in doing some lewd things with the girls to check out the uh, product because my wife is along. But what he did was he told these women privately while really speaking to them as most of them are all Mormons themselves. So he's talking in very spiritual terms and lofty terms that they need to really sell so hard that their husband and wife, that they need to do some private things to start acting like their husband and wife. And that's when they started getting these tantric sex massages and showering together and they'd have to sleep in beds together this was not only during the operations which i don't know why these people would have even seen any of that because the people who are the tra traffickers are only meeting them in you know some other central location where they're bringing them in for a party or something so you know how these women bought into this i'll, I'll never understand other than he was painted to be such a sacred guy almost like a saint that they have already been groomed even before they ever got to Tim Ballard to not question men and to not question men who they thought were uh, spiritually advanced. 
So he would say, you know, we need to shower together and we need to do these other kind of things. So we really get into a groove and it looks like we're compatible. And if they hesitated, he would just say, well, what about the children? Are you willing to go anywhere to save the children? Are you willing to do anything to save them? Which is just a cruel thing. It's almost like he held the kids as hostages. Because you can imagine if some kind of kidnappers kidnapped a family and said, well, you know, wife, if you know, you're going to sleep with me. And if not, I'm going to hurt your kids. It's the same mindset with this. He's using the kids and exploiting them for his own, you know, perverse ends. And so the information was looked at internally at uh, Operation Underground. And they weren't talking. They Nobody was letting it out. But some information got out. Um, then there was an anonymous letter sent by somebody on the inside that was obviously a whistleblower to the... Uh, people who were the donors because they had some well-heeled donors putting serious money. I mean, this thing grew up into like, I think 60 or 7 million, $70 million operation in just a few years time from a little bit of money up to that. Nobody knowing where the money's going. And they had set up all these businesses, including uh, underneath the nonprofit, all these for-profit ones, including a series of gyms that they owned uh, a clothing line store that they owned, and they came up with some kind of lame rationale that all of it somehow supported the cause. These were all for-profit things, but you could not trace it because of the umbrella nonprofit. And one of them, one of the most interesting ones, and I don't know if you have much information about this because hardly anybody can, it's called Deacon Incorporated. And it was supposed to support some kind of militia group, some kind of security system, uh, group that sounds a lot like a Blackwater kind of thing. And I don't know if this is how they paid people that were extra muscle on the operations or their own personal security, or if they're actually going and getting business a la Blackwater for other activities. But the fact of the matter is this is a full-blown company that has no address, has no leaders that they can contact, no website, no other way to contact it. So all of this was, was going on at this time. Well, anyway, this anonymous letter goes out talking about what they discovered with these studies by these women who had been there. So that got circulated and cat out of the bag. And that made our mad because they were everybody's under non-disclosure agreement. So they don't want any of this out. Of course, that affects their fundraising. You know, if they got and obviously Ballard didn't want this out. Um, but Right at the time this movie hit it big on, I think it was July 13th, they just suddenly announced that he was dismissed and gave no reason why. Now, it turns out that several years before that, um, uh, he and Glenn Beck had been real close. Glenn Beck had had him on his show talking about some of his nuttier books that were basically saying all the founding fathers were Mormons and this was the Mormon agenda going back that far. Um, and so Glenn liked all that kind of stuff. David Barton tolerated it, although I think he could have seen seen Ballard as a rival uh, in his pseudo-history influence on, on uh, him. But I guess they figured the more the merrier. If you bring in the Mormon crowd and their money, that just helps the whole operation. 
So they went back a long way. So this Nazarene fund, which was supposed to help children in the Middle East, well, they recognize there's gold there in them there hills, as they used to say. And so they sort of repackaged the Nazarene fund to also focus on child trafficking. And he basically handed the keys over to Ballard. And he made Ballard the CEO of that operation as well. So, But that goes all the way back, I believe, to 2015 when that happened. And it didn't take but maybe a week after he was dismissed an hour when suddenly the Nazarene Fund dismissed him as well, too. Uh, and it, it gets worse from there. There's like a cascading effect of things that happen and his denials, uh, you know, his conspiracy theory he came up with on what's happening to him. But the the vultures are circling around Tim Ballard. And uh, even today, I just noticed before our show now that some of the people suing him have now requested that the assets of our be frozen so they can't be dispersed before the people who win these lawsuits can get access to them. But it's it's threatening the top of the Mormon church like the number two, number three guy in the Mormon church who something just happened to the last few days. Also, the attorney general of Utah is in this from the very beginning. And now he is under, uh, they've now called for an audit of all of his activities. And you know, as well as I know that the state of Utah is very similar to how Chicago was in the 1920s. There's an overt government, and then there's the power behind it that runs everything. And in Utah, everybody knows that's the Mormon church. No secret there. And so, you know, they didn't have any problem with all the hijinks that Tim Ballard was doing when he could make them money, and he was making individuals at the top money, or bringing new people into the church, which will indirectly make them money. But when they started giving them bad PR... They dropped Ballard like a three-foot putt, and he's still in denial over it. He still does not accept that he's not really still in the good graces of the Mormon church. So it's a very, very bizarre situation right now. But all these revelations started happening of the secret organizations that were going on, and his followers were basically, they were the marks in a con game. He had confidence men. He had other men who were working the whole thing from all fronts. And sadly, these people who really do care about kids but are real gullible were the marks that have their wallets have been lightened dramatically. And probably very little of that money will ever be confiscated and go to, you know, the right people for for good ends. Uh, to interject a few things here, um, one thing, and I'm glad you brought up to the business structure that they were using, where you essentially have a lot of these for-profit businesses uh, hovering, I guess, around a non-profit, so to speak. Uh, but this is really a pretty common tactic in these circles. I mean, obviously, um, a little bit of uh, reporting has come out in regards to the actual assets that the LDS itself possesses, which are uh, quite significant. It's, it's not quite on the level of the Catholic Church, but it's it's very impressive nonetheless. Um, 
they do a lot of that as well. But more specifically, you see this a lot with uh, some of these fundamentalist Mormon sects who in many cases are actually quite wealthy despite the poverty of many of the members. And right. um, in this case, I'm thinking specifically of the Kingston family, uh, certainly one of the more notorious uh, sects, but phenomenally wealthy. Uh, it's been uh, rumored that they may have assets close to up to half a billion dollars. And they own a, just a considerable amount of businesses of various degrees. Some of things that you would kind of expect, like cattle ranches and discount stores and things like that. But it's also interesting to note that they are the family that owns Desert Tech Firearms, uh, which is a pretty significant arms manufacturer. So yeah, you know, this is another aspect about some of these groups is they do have um, many of these peculiar connections to uh some more militant pursuits i guess you would say um well and that's true here too because one of the key people probably one of the most sinister people in this operation is a guy by the name of paul hutchinson i don't know if you've studied him much but he's been the biggest money guy in the operation now m russell ballard who's on the quorum of 12 apostles he was in pretty deep too it sounds but paul hutchinson is the biggest rich guy in it and one of the businesses he owns which is totally different than his other things he does is in advanced body armor and armored vehicle armor now there's nothing wrong in owning any of that you know i mean those are legit businesses but your point is well taken it's curious that they gravitate to this of course you know a lot of people didn't know that the Coors family which was the main family that basically bankrolled all of ronald reagan's political career um very very anti-worker anti-union family uh very elitist family um when i worked at wright patterson the coors beer company was one of the main makers of uh, armor ceramic armor uh for the military so you know there's money there on the table it's sort of shooting fish out of a barrel with the military particularly during the cold war to make money so i'm surprised they don't miss it but as far as like religious organizations having these tentacles of investments that don't really relate to their mission at all to be fair to the mormons this technique transcends so many different groups you look at the like the maharishas up in the Northwest that drove around in Rolls Royces and had all this money invested everywhere while their followers were dirt poverty. The Unification Church, the Moons owned all of these businesses that had nothing to do with religion all around the world, including the Washington Times, the number one conservative newspaper owned by the Unification Church, while a lot of their people had to live off the trinkets they sold on the street. I mean, you've seen what Scientology, Scientology businesses are all over the nation on what they own. Even Liberty University owns probably a major hunk of all of the real estate in Lynchburg, Virginia. Malls, all sorts of other businesses that they have. And and actually, it's not that they're just saying, well, we're, we're just making money to help our cause. You know, we're investing our talents. We have... That's where they seem they put all of their energies. 
Their, their energies and time is to find way to make more secular money-making operations rather than the religious or spiritual duty. That's, they, they have very little time for that. So, you know, to be fair to the Mormons, the Mormons do have a major, major operation, and it should be exposed. If we could put all of the organizations, the stuff that we buy from day to day, that are owned by one of these religious churches and they don't disclose it, we would be shocked. Like, for example, the Marriott Corporation, overwhelmingly Mormon operated. Now, the Marriott family, I don't know where their piece of the ownership versus LDS, but they make sure that Book of Mormon's in every hotel room. Uh, and it's one thing to have private individuals that happen to be religious that own businesses, you know, but a lot of these church properties are where they put all of their heart and where their energy is. And it's like Jesus said, he says, uh, you know, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And these guys are case in point of it. The, the M. Russell Ballard, I don't know if we're going to talk more about him later. He was the key connection in the Mormon church for Tim Ballard. They're not related. He is the head of the quorum of the 12 apostles. He is either number two or number three to the throne for the presidency. Um, he's in his mid-90s, and here he is trying to come up with new ways on how to form new businesses to make more money. Why, you know, I know, I know you, uh, Stephen, you don't spend all of your time trying to think how to make money. I don't either. I mean, sometimes you, you got to pay the bills, but, but this guy in his mid-90s, as comfortable as he is, is trying to sit around, trying to devise new ways how to find, to add more, or like Jesus said, tear down his barns to build newer ones. What is wrong with people that in their mid-90s, that's what's taking up their time and energy? It says something about them. It says something about their entire life, that this is what captures the last few precious moments of their time and their life in their legacy. He's trying to find another new little gimmick Another new little operation to shake down some more money.
how it plays into um, a lot of mythos, I guess you could say, that the LDS has potentially been trying to push for close to 100 years. And a lot of this um, revolves around this deification of the founding fathers. Uh, in the case of Ballard's book, uh, The Washington Hypothesis, which is the one that I have uh, read at this point, uh, he really goes into a lot about George Washington's divine mission in establishing this nation. And as he is winding down uh, this rather copious read, he gets into this whole concept of Washington essentially reenacting the steps of the mythological Mormon figure known as Captain Monroni. Uh, I've seen some different accounts of this, but theoretically, this is separate from the angel slash prophet Moroni, 
who is actually the being that is depicted uh, on the top of virtually all LDS temples uh, with the trumpets yeah. and so forth. Though Ballard does claim that it was the angel Moroni that appeared to George Washington at Valley Forge uh, rather than just any old normal angel. But Captain Moroni was theoretically an early military leader uh, for the Nephites who, much like Washington or Cincinnati, laid his sword down to go into retirement. But anyway, Ballard makes the comparison between Washington and Captain Moroni by citing five specific acts in Washington's life that coincided with Moroni. So he gives them as thus. Uh, quoting from pages 178, 179 of the Washington Hypothesis here. Uh, Just as Moroni had girded on his armor before presenting the covenant to the nation on that day, Washington had done something similar. Before taking the balcony at Federal Hall, a witness observed how he had dressed in a full suit of dark brown cloth of American manufacture with a steel-hilted sword and tied above his waist. Two, just as Moroni had prayed on that day, Washington had led the people to pray at St. Paul's Chapel, not to mention the other prayer associated with the inauguration that was called for the New York Daily Advisor to commence on 9 o'clock that morning. Three, just as Moroni had brought forth the Tree of Liberty on that day, and that the people might see it, so did Washington. The prominent, the promise of the Tree of Liberty are the promise of the Constitution. Both are written forms of God's government, governmental mandate to preserve moral agency. Washington's inauguration set the U.S. government in motion. It was the day the Constitution was activated. If there was any specific point in time where we might say Washington raised up his tr- title of liberty, it was this day. Four, just as Moroni had called the people to the covenant while raising the famous standard, explaining to them the righteousness of living was the only way to secure God's blessing, so Washington did the same. The blessings, Washington said, would only come to the United States as its people obeyed the eternal rules of order and right, while heaven itself, which heaven itself has ordained. And as the ancient people responded enthusiastically to Moroni, so the modern ones responded similarly to Washington. Huzzah! 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 cheered the Americans. Then they followed their beloved leader to the chapel to let God know they had accepted his covenant. I've never actually seen Huzzah before for cheers, but that's just me. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that's old school. Uh, five. Finally, just as Moroni confirmed his ability to call his people to the covenant by referencing Jacob's grand blessing to Joseph, so Washington appears to have done the same. While standing on the balcony of Federal Hall, he too called out the very same ancient prophecy of America while raising our title of liberty. Now, the thing you have to understand about this is Ballard is hardly the first Mormon who has embraced this kind of perception of the Founding Fathers. It probably has an earlier precedent, but it really seems to have gained traction with one of the most interesting presidents of the Quam of the Twelve Apostles, who had overseen this group towards the end of the late 19th century. And this is the, uh, the group, basically the governing body for the church. His name was Wilford Woodruff, and in, I believe, 1894, he had a curious vision in a place called St. George, Utah, which in and of itself is a very curious place to begin with, and a lot of strange history that has unfolded there. 
But in this vision, several figures such as Christopher Columbus, Horatio Nelson, John Wesley, Benjamin Franklin, and George Washington potentially appeared to him. Uh, and this is where he had supposedly began to get the inclination of the purpose of the founding fathers establishing this country so that they could bring forth the true revelation of the Book of Mormon. And Woodruff is just an interestingly fascinating person on so many levels um, for another reason, because he was also one of the major people who pushed the colonies in Mexico and Canada that became so popular among polygamists. Uh, this is again right around the time when Utah was trying to achieve statehood and they were being pressured to give up polygamy by the U.S. government. So Woodruff um, had essentially come up with several loopholes, but one way they kind of got around this were these colonies. Now, again, the Mormons had certainly had a presence both south and north of the border before uh, his presidency, which I believe started around 1878. But Woodruff really, really pushed this. And again, based on some of the things that I've tried to talk about before with these fundamentalist sects, you can essentially see the genesis with these actions of what became effectively a interstate trafficking ring uh, that includes now multiple countries, um, which I know will be quite controversial in some circles, but nonetheless, uh, if you look up the Lost Boys phenomena or some of the treatment that has been meted out by the Kingston family. Oh gosh, anything to do with Warren Jeffs, it's rather hard to deny this. And this was a system that Woodruff was absolutely instrumental in establishing. And I want to emphasize that Mr. Ballard holds this man in very high regard and uses it, his vision as a basis for his further deification of the founders. And finally, one last point I want to put uh, point out with this is that the Mormons are not the only ones that have barked upon the deification of the Founding Fathers, and especially George Washington. Washington has very much been presented as a effective reincarnation of Enoch in a lot of our nation's architecture, driven by a combination of the Masons and the Society of Cincinnati. Um, this is quite evident when you look at the painting of Washington on the Capitol Dome, the National Archives, right. where you see him in his full-blown Enochian guise flanked by um, Columbia and her two different personifications as liberty and virtue. And yes, it's, they're not even really trying to hide it. And by the way, but, but isn't, I mean, doesn't the very name of that work itself make it blatant? Isn't it like the apotheosis of yes, George Washington, of Washington, which yeah, means yeah, the yeah. deification of George mm -hmm, Washington? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a total, I mean, like, Enoch, you know, is he walked with God? So Washington walked with God. He rises up and doesn't die effectively is what they're getting at with this. So this has been a big thing that's been going on in this country for a long time. And when you look at how this seems to have really been, I mean, it was probably always ingrained into the Mormon church. I, I don't know enough to really speak to that, but it certainly became a major agenda by the late 19th century. And it's certainly something to keep in mind uh, as we're discussing this, especially from the perspective, perspective, I would think of many Christians who I don't think would... Um, appreciate the the founding fathers being depicted in this way to put it mildly mm -hmm. well mormons wouldn't have that problem because 
they actually teach themselves becoming deity themselves at death. And, you know, um, Orthodox Christianity would find that would be totally blasphemous. You know, you may have a new body and be generated and even be an adopted child in a way of God, but you're not God. In Mormonism, that's different. They do believe in a deification process itself. And um, part of that process is something they call the second anointing, which is something that they instruct their people, do not talk and tell other people about the second anointing. And there's a place in the temple itself. There was even one in, was it Nauvoo, their earlier temple in Illinois, but in Salt Lake City called the Holy of Holies. And that's a place where they do the, the second anointing, which is part of the Godhead and deification process. Does that play into the baptism of the dead, if I'm not mistaken? Well, that's just part of the the strange amalgamation amalgamation of cosmology where where yeah you can you can help people who have died and didn't have it all together and were good mormons and good standing you can help them you know pass go and collect $200 in the afterlife by doing that which again they get that part from the catholic church um but they do believe that you know all good mormons will have some deified status and their wives it's like a mount olympus kind of thing after they die but for select couples and they do they do it less commonly now and they they forbid advertising about it can actually be basically deified here on earth before that so what i'm saying is this kind of thinking is not foreign foreign to the mormon mindset uh, particularly to, you know, very specialized people. But basically, if you just stand back and look at it, regardless of who the group is, because we see David Barton and some right-wing Christian religious right people do something, you know, a little little bit under that. It's a fetishizing of things and making them into talismans and something far more than what they are. And this has been a problem for religious people going even all the way back before Christianity. If you remember back in Israel, in the Bible, it talks about that there was this God told them to make this brass serpent because they were getting bitten by snakes because they'd been doing, they'd been disobeying God and doing horrible things. And he had this where they were getting, you know, bitten and dying. And when they called out to him, he said, make this brass serpent put up on a pole. If you look on it, you know, you can be healed of it. Well, that was supposed to be one incident. They were supposed to learn from it and move on. I mean, literally move on down the road. Well, they decided to hang on to that thing and they hung on to it. And eventually many, many, many years later, generations, they nailed it up to the front of the temple and they started worshiping it. And they got called out for it. It's like, you totally missed the whole point of what this was. They did that with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a sign to them of to remind them of the covenant they had made back on Sinai and, you know, God's with them. So what do they do? They think it's a magic amulet that they would carry out into the battlefield. Even when they were told not to, they just carry it out there because they thought it was like an invulnerability shield. And it got stolen. It got stolen and taken from by the Philistines. And, of course, God had a little humor with that because he ended up giving the Philistines... Uh, hemorrhoids 
because of that. Um, and so they they sent sit the ark back. They just aimed the donkeys in the direction of Israel and sent it back. But religious people have had this kind of thing all along. And then Christianity, sadly, started doing the same thing. They started fetishizing things into relics and pilgrimages and creeds and having power and slivers of the cross. Or even, I mean, a lot of people might disagree with me here, but the sacraments and things. They mysticize things that become, and and, and in effect, the people of my background, religious right background, fundamentalists, get real close to doing that with the the manuscripts of the Bible. They, in effect, make them like the fourth member of the Godhead and give all the attributes that only God would have. And simple things like, you know, Jesus says, wash your feet. Just remember me when you do that. Or if you drink this cup, remember me. Well, then it ends up becoming some big mystical thing with people with fancy hats and some mystical thing that happens when this and that. None of that is in the original text. None of that is supported, but there there becomes power within an elite of being able to, one, sell that and then be able to control it and be the gatekeepers for it. And so, you know, Mormon church, even though they may be more extreme and sort of a little weird and, in fact, even a little kinky by our definition, they're following something that they see with other religious groups, too. But the curious thing I wonder, Stephen, is, you know, I'm pretty uh, critical of the people of my Bible Belt religious background, and I am still a person of faith, still a follower of Jesus. But they're so gullible. Are they so gullible that because they're associating this more? In fact, I don't even know how many of them even know that Tim Ballard's a Mormon. Okay, they're that far behind on the curve. But if they did, would this be tempting for them? Are they? They're so unknowledgeable about truth, history, fact finding, whether it's theological or just historical facts, that they would be tempted to do what Tim Ballard and M. Russell Ballard and their cohorts think they can do is actually sway a large part of the main part of the religious America to Mormonism. And I don't know. I don't know if that would happen, but I would not be shocked because a lot of Christians have gone to um, QAnon, which is like ridiculous things, didn't take anything to sell that to people. And, you know, MAGA or whatever it is, fill in the blank. So so they bought these things. So my big thing I'm wondering is, are people, are Christians going to finally find out, huh, he's a Mormon. He's trying to get to be a Mormon. And are, is that going to, like, cause concern for them? Or are they going to go along with it? I mean, you think about how much it paid off for the Mormon church to get the business account of Glenn Beck. I don't know if you know the story of how he became a Mormon, but, you know, he wasn't raised in that. He picked it as a grown adult. He he had a really, really rough life of, you know, he was successful career-wise, but a lot of self-doubt and, you know, in personal life not successful and a lot of drug abuse and stuff like that. And so he wanted a good family environment, so he had to pick a religion. And he did not say that he looked at which ones had you know, the most verification or rational underpinnings. 
you know, uh, had evidentiary information that there was some veracity. That was not, it didn't appear to be a factor. What he said, reason why he picked Mormonism was he said, they're just so family oriented. They just orient toward the family and emphasize that. And I thought it would be good for my family. None, none of it had anything to do with like, you know, I think what they say is true. You know, their cosmology and how Joseph Smith got this. I think it's really factual what he got and the evidence seems to strongly support it. And even like the historical digs and everything else, that was never a factor in it. And so most of these things that have been funded, Glenn Beck has been a big one writing the checks for it to support the Mormon church. And he has done an effective job of putting Mormon thinking into the ideas of his many Christian followers. Even guys, a lot of your listeners will follow like, um, Michael Heiser, God bless him, passed away. Very influential guy. He was a big supporter of Glenn Beck. A lot of the people we know like Glenn Beck's worldview, but he worked in Mormon ideas like the prophecy of the, the man on a white horse coming in to save the Constitution when the Constitution is hanging by a thread. He would talk about that all the time, and it became the vernacular of a lot of the Christians I knew who kept saying that that's going to happen. You know, it's been prophesied as hanging by thread. They had no idea that was a Mormon prophecy. I think it was from Brigham Young. Uh, Mormon, not a, a conventional Christian thing at all, but they didn't know. So I've got a lot of real questions on, are these kind of operations, is there going to be some fruit born, even if Ballard himself goes down in flames? Well, no, I, I think that that's a very valid point, and it's something that I have been especially concerned with in recent years, given the way that um, American spirituality is effectively developing. Uh, to sort of look at the other side of the coin, uh, when you look at the whole New Age or spiritual but not religious movement that has become so preeminent in a lot of individuals and, well, at this point, really the left, the middle ground, and even a lot of people on the right, and uh, even it's been incorporated into a lot of nominally Christian individuals. But regardless, when you go back through the history of this, uh, you see that this whole movement was especially uh, prevalent in the United States since at least the late 19th century, and especially in the Western states with a major emphasis on California. And the thing about this is that these are the same states where Mormonism was very prevalent in for many years. And I do not believe that this is a mere coincidence. And again, I'm not necessarily trying to uh, throw shade on Mormonism in this regard, but right. it is very compatible with a lot of these ideologies, especially when you get down to it. It's more or less a proto-ancient astronaut religion, uh, which is- Yes, it is, really. That is very crucial because when you see- especially in the UFO circles. I mean, the stuff like Skinwalker Ranch, this is owned by Brendan Fugel, who's a major Mormon, and a lot of these other groups have been funded massively by members of the Mormon community. I think the Marriott family was involved in this. Um, mm -hmm. There's a couple of other major backers with this. But when you look at how prevalent some of this stuff has become, uh, you know, the whole uh, ancient astronaut or 
uh, the pre-contact or, you know, just the whole notion that we had evolved out of an alien species or something like that. This, these notions are very compatible with Mormonism. And I do think that as you see that becoming more prevalent on the whole and then also gaining inroads in um, various Christian communities with not just the uh, the ancient astronaut or cargo cult stuff, but also uh, some of the other aspects of New Age philosophy. Of course, you could look at things like New Thought, uh, which is always sort of bounced back and forth between Christian sects and uh, you know New Age practitioners. But I do think that in a since it is almost a kind of perfect storm for Mormonism to really gain traction yeah. and a much larger following than it currently possesses right now, because there are a lot of aspects of the faith that lend itself well to the way that spirituality is developing in this country. Well, you know, um, I guess to add to that, you know, I come from a religious tradition I come from a Baptist tradition, okay? They're going to have a certain self-perception, and then everybody else has a different view of them. Um, but one thing I will say about that form of evangelicalism, and I'm excluding the MAGA era and even some era before then, in general, they had a reputation of contributing in America to a more rational, and again, I'm not talking about the extreme fundamentalist like the monkey scopes trial crowd but i'm talking about their theology what was wanted to be systematic it was wanted to be based upon rational steps you know if you had the big leap of faith about christ rising from the dead and stuff if you get past that from there there was an emphasis on rationalism it was not on visions it was not on personal revelations or visitations or any of that kind of stuff it was on a rational, systematic extension of that basic core of, of belief, and that contributed to, in America, a basic common sense in things. Okay? They didn't go for the, the little pseudo-mystical trappings of things. And I know for many people of faith, those things are very important to them, and I don't want to dismiss it. But that was sort of the general zeitgeist of America, Level, generally level-headed, you know, even though they had some little funny extreme stuff. What I'm seeing now in the last few years is that this acceleration of events, that QAnon, MAGA, the whole COVID conspiracy, the rise of social media has done, and really talk radio before that. You know, you got major milestones. In 88, uh, you had Rush Limbaugh come along, had a counter-narrative to the main press built this cult following then you had fox news come up in 96 added visuals added a whole lot more resources you know dimensions to add to it and then the rise of the internet was a whole nother kettle of fish because then that democratized where guys sitting in their basement could get millions of followers you know but what i'm finding is everyone that is someone who has spiritual inclinations are taking, for one reason or another, more extreme next steps on where they're associating and affiliating. Some of them have taken extreme steps by jumping in, people who should know better, into the QAnon with both feet or into MAGA with both feet or these other things. Some others 
have been repulsed by that, that know better. But they've done what I call jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire or having a rebound romance that may be no better. Um, in a secular sense, I saw a lot of people who rightfully started pointing out some of the sins of American foreign policy in their war making and imperialism and things. And they rightly pointed those things out. So what happened to a lot of those people like Glenn Greenwald, like um, uh, some other guys' names, get me. What they did was they ran into the running arms of Vladimir Putin because he was an American and he was everything America wasn't. So they so they they went from, you know, this broken relationship to a rebound romance of somebody who's more abusive to him. The same thing's happening with religious people. One of the guys, just as one example, very, very level headed, top level, very um, responsible journalist from like one of the main Christian mainstream publications that actually outed a lot of corrupt, you know, televangelists and other leaders. It did wonderful work, very responsible. I have found out personally, like their leaders have gotten so alarmed with where the religious right and evangelicalism is going that they've thrown up their hands with evangelicalism and gone to more formalized beliefs like Anglicanism where you have the incense and you have all of the ornate stuff, you know, and the fancy sacraments and stuff. And they have retreated to that, even though normally as evangelicals, they would have been much more uh, sort of raised eyebrow over all that kind of stuff and the, the totemism and the rituals involved, but they have retreated to that. Another guy like uh, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, like hardcore Bible, uh, uh, doctrine, you know, he would be a heresy hunter, fight these people and hardcore evangelical stuff. Well, he started getting disgruntled, so he ended up becoming a member of the Orthodox Church. Shocked everybody that's following him. So he sort of had to renounce all the other stuff that he believed, you know, like salvation by faith and all these things. He had to renounce all that to do this. Other people I know are picking these other extreme movements because we're in this terrible time of unsettlement and confusion. And in this disequilibrium, people make poor choices out of panicking, and they go to something that they sense there's a, a little bit of some security and calmness, and they draw their support from things that they shouldn't be drawing it from. And so in that kind of environment i could see movements like mormonism could be picking off a lot of people it seems to be stable it seems to be they like the family thing you know people are big into the christian family movements and there's nobody that pushes well, the, in say, fact they almost deify the family i put it that way the I deify mean, I, it that they make it eternal well i mean i think that's also a big part of the potential appeal as well as just more broadly speaking not just the family but the broader sense of community with it because this is something that the mormon church seems to have really done uh effectively going into the 21st century uh because as i look at the united states um obviously there's a lot that could be said for good or ill about the role that christian churches played in establishing communities but nonetheless communities are to my mind an essential part of human existence and as many mainline churches have faded away in providing this 
Uh, I think that it's left a lot of alienated and isolated individuals out there, and it seems to be borne out by the skyrocketing amounts of uh, suicides and drug addiction, right. alcoholism. So when you look at something like Mormonism, where it does seem to have preserved this concept of community, I think that as well is incredibly enticing. And this is something that I've witnessed personally with a lot of people who well, I'm thinking of one individual specifically who grew up in a um, kind of new apostolic reformation aligned uh, Christian church who left it, but later gravitated into an equally, I would say, cultish new age movement. For the, I think, simple reason that they, uh, even though they rejected the ideology of the prior church, they were desperate for the sense of community right. that it gave them. And they were willing to go into another cultish ideology to regain that community. All right. I agree. And, and uh, another group I didn't mention, because, see, those people may have gone into the new age acceptance. You can easily go the other direction and go into hardcore fundamentalism. Um, a big rise, one of the big rises in groups in America now within the Christian world is in the Reformed Calvinist movement. Reformed Calvinists are supremely confident they've got every minute detail figured out. They've got everything. There's no thing that is ready, and they can they can just recite it, and they go out, and they feel very, very confident in what they say and sound very intelligent. And there's no more thinking, there's no more uh, latitude, you know, for variability and even small stuff. Everything's to the Nats eyebrow because John Calvin figured it out at the age of 26. And there's been nothing else to say on the topic since then. So they, there's a security they find in that, a smugness of certainty. Not that they figured out things themselves or it makes sense for them, but somebody that looks like they know what they're talking about has told them that. People also run off to the experiential side. That's partly where the New Age people you're talking about. The, the Christian variant of that would be in the charismatic movement, Pentecostal. Very much experiential kind of thing from being triggered for the, the tongues kind of thing, the glossolalia, or other things that they can actually uh, be induced into doing gives them another sense of belonging. And... If you're a student of history, like I know you are, you know that's exactly how Nazism built and took the stragglers, first of all, the stragglers of society, because a lot of those brown shirts were just disaffected ne'er-do-wells. A lot of them were disaffected World War I vets, you know, walking the streets, and they found a home and a certainty in what they were doing. Eventually, the mainstream, they had at least a critical mass of the mainstream come on board, too, because they could get the trains to run on time and things like that. So we're at a time now of tremendous instability and disequilibrium. And where people land, if I could just tell everybody, you know, you, I don't want everybody supremely cynical and not believe anything. You know, nothing, everything nihilistic, everything is meaningless. I certainly don't believe that. But you better be really, really careful on who influences you, because the way you were just describing that a minute ago about people who feel alienated and by themselves and tempted to suicide or other kind of things. We used to say not too long ago that those were the perfect people for the cults to pick up. Because all the many groups that we've always called cults would look on be on the prowl for those kind of people 
And, you know, it might be a, a weird dysfunctional family, but it was a family nevertheless. I was reading about one the other day where they called the children of God, but they were a subset of hippies that were all yeah, World were War II one. vets. Yes, yes, yes. Now they uh, came into contact with the Manson family eventually, <laughs> of course. Yeah, but like the World War II, these these World War, or excuse me, Vietnam vets were disaffected and they got these bizarre, super dysfunctional families that scared everybody in the communities, but particularly like in Colorado and up in the mountains. Uh, and it was just somewhere where they could land. Now, there was no way sustainable. I mean, none of them had jobs. They, they didn't even take baths. They, you could smell them for miles away. And it was like part of their calling card. And even the hippies were scared of them. Because a lot of them were armed, they were violent. And so you look at Mormonism and it's far more uh, appealing, particularly if you don't want to get hung up on theology too much. You know, if you're like Glenn Beck, it's like, well, I just want somewhere that you're learning good moral principles and learning, you know, how to be sustainable in a family and healthy and happy. And all those are good things. But of like being like really, really right on how things are in the greater world outside cosmology, if you're not real picky on all that stuff, Mormonism offers a tremendous infrastructure, uh, a sweetness, a familiness of, you know, comfort. And I tell you, another group that may really start appealing to the Mormon world, something that they have emphasized in their whole time, since particularly since they've been outsiders and, and somewhat apocalyptic in their thinking is they are probably the number one preppers on a wide scale in America. A lot of what Mormonism does is prepare for the eventual breakdown of society. And so there is no one more organized for the breakdown of civilization than the Mormon church. They're completely self-sufficient. They've got their own warehouses, basic food stuff and other things, production. And when you become part of the Mormon church, you inherit all that. Now, you're expected to contribute to it, but they take it deadly seriously. Yeah, I mean, most rank-and-file Mormons are preppers. I mean, that's a very good point. But again, it's it, it's not a coincidence that, you know, you see a lot of the militia movements and the broader kind of prepper community, again, having a lot of overlap with heavy, uh, you know, uh, states that are heavy with the Mormon numbers in them. So, but 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 you know people let, let's say do things did get really bad and you know resources got to be scarce people would feel a lot of pressure to join a community like that and a lot of these guys up in the hills and you know militia guys we know they talk a lot of talk but they haven't really gotten it as organized as they need to like the mormon church the mormon church has you know resources they got some real visionary corporate people that are sharp folk that have looked on how to sustaining things for a really long term. These other guys, they might be able to hang on for three months, but eventually they're going to need somebody to go to that's had the big picture. And so that, that kind of thing, if that happens in our society and who knows, it could be around the corner would be something to really play into the hands of a group like the Mormon church. Yeah, I mean, if things get kind of Mad Max, that would definitely be a situation where I would see them cleaning up, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. All right, folks, I think that is a good note to end things on here.
certainly a chilling one. Anyway, Doc will be back with me next week to continue this fascinating conversation. We've still got quite a few big reveals to come yet concerning Mr. Ballad's organization. We're going to get into some of the weird stuff as well that has been linked to this fellow, um, most notably his purported revelations on ketamine. Uh, you are definitely not going to want to miss that discussion. And with that, I will sign off for now. As always, thank you guys so much for listening and your support. Good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chase. My people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin roll More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Got y'all on some Aztec Bullshit, never Bells of weed and cannibals with Santa wet diffused in it. Shoot it over the castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall. The greatest walls are bound to fall. So legalize it, Vato, about a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught a realized it. But farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. Got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hoodie blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. 
If great white father don't make payroll, forget about your maple.